Well, we have a really, really exciting episode tonight. I've been uh, looking forward to doing this. It took a little while because it is about one of my favorite topics, genomics. And when we think about genomics, there are some controversial components like stem cells, um, cloning, and um, precision medicine. So uh, this is gonna be um, exciting. It's going to be fun-filled. And, um, and also we're gonna talk about some fun things like uh, Jurassic Park, a uh, real life Jurassic Park. So stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for another episode of Welcome. Interesting topic tonight, folks, uh, ladies and gentlemen. So what come, comes to mind when we think about genomics or when you think about genomics? Uh, do you think about genetically modified food or GMOs? Uh, do you think about cloning dinosaurs to create a, a Jurassic Park? Uh, cloning and editing superhumans to create a super army? Or do you think about the controversy associated with embryonic cell uh, stem cell research? Um, are we playing God? Or are we just discovering the powers of God that exist in each of us as human beings? Let's get into it. So genetics and genomics both play roles in health and disease. So when we think about the difference between genetics and genomics, it is important to remember the genetics refer to the understanding of our genes um, in terms of the way that traits are passed down from one generation to another. Genomics, on the other hand, describes all of a person's genes. We'll get into what that means uh, here as we move through this uh, podcast. But I want to start first with talking about what the word gene means. What do we mean by gene? So when thinking about our genetics or our inherited traits from our parents, the term gene can indicate a unit of heredity uh, which is transferred from a parent to offspring and is held to determine a unit of heredity um, or a characteristic for the child and offspring. But when thinking in terms of genomics, um, uh, I like to use a more technical term or discuss it, discuss genomics more around understanding a gene um, and it is in a distinct way. Uh, as a distinct sequence of nucleotides forming part of a chromosome. Um, so one of the most basic things or, or most basic ways to potentially describe a gene and how uh, genomics impacts our daily lives is to liken the genomic code to a binary computer program. So when you think about a computer program, you can think about it in terms of ones and zeros. And the ones and zeros are used to create a program and the program then tells the computer how to operate. It's, it's basically software programming, right? And you have start, program start, uh, and stop codons or codes. Um, well, you have the same thing. I, I, this is way oversimplifying, but you kind of have the same thing with the human genome. Except in the case of the human genome, the computer code is made up of a combination of four amino acids. Rather than ones and zeros, you have a combination or a codex of A, G, T, C, or adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. Those are amino acids that when combined, they will create proteins, 
uh, not the kind of proteins that, and don't think about this in terms of like your muscles and growing muscles throughout working out, but rather the proteins are, are really a chemical signal that creates a signaling pathway for the, for the rest of your body in terms of how to operate. So that is the body's operating system. And you can think about our, our bodies as, a, as the hardware and our genome as the software. So let's use the, the human colon for, for an example in terms of how this work works. The, the colon um, replicates the lining of, of it, its own lining, the epithelial, epithelial cells, every five to seven days. So how does that happen? Well, it happens because there are uh, gene signals that come from our cells. Every single human cell has the entire genomic code encoded into them. So if a cell is differentiated to function like a colon cell, which it, in this case, in our example, it is, the colon cell will have the right code to turn on the mechanism to shed or kill off the old epithelial lining and then there is another codex uh, or codon or, or um, sequence that uh, signals the cells of the colon to um, grow and to replace itself. So imagine if one of those codes was turned, over, turned on in a hyperstate, like replicating over and over again, or if the code didn't work to turn off or to um, shed the old uh, epithelial lining. If you have mutations like that, then then you can imagine that the col the the cells of the colon, the lining of the colon, would begin to overly grow or overly proliferate, which really is all really results in cancer, and that's all that cancer actually is. All types of all kinds of cancer come from this genetic anomaly, and I or or genetic mutation, and I I've had some people say. You'll, there may be people that will comment that will try to say that genomics is not or, or cancer is not a genetic disease or a genomic disease. And I'm telling you, it is absolutely related to um, our genomic code. And many diseases are. And we'll learn about that in, the, in our podcast today. Um, so genetics, again, thinking about genetics, um, the re researchers and scientists who are working on genetics really um, are concerning themselves with scientific studies of genes and their effects and, and how those are inherited or even disorders are inherited from one generation to the other. So an example of this is cystic fibrosis. And I wanna take some time to really talk about cystic fibrosis. It's a really good case study for how, for, to understand genetics, genomics, and inherited disease. So it's worth spending some time on. So um, mutations in a gene called the CFTR or the cystic fibrosis trans, uh, transmembrane regulator gene, the CFTR gene causes cystic fibrosis. Um, and that gene was actually discovered in 1989. In normal cells, the CFTR protein acts as a channel that allows cells to release chloride and other ions. But in people with cystic fibrosis, this protein is defective uh, and the cells do not release the chloride. So again, going back to the computer code, the cells have the right encoded or encrypted information to send the chemical signals to make the 
body function the way it should, like releasing chloride, chloride and, and other ions. So if there's a mutation in that gene, that channel is not going to work properly and it will result in a disease like cystic fibrosis. This in cystic fibrosis, uh, the CFTR, um, that mutation causing um, this this problem or, or erroneous signal, it results in improper salt balance in the cells. It also results in thick and uh, sticky mucus um, generated in, in different parts of the endocrine system and in the, in the lungs. So researchers are focused on ways um, to cure cystic fibrosis through genomics and, and actually correcting the defective gene um, and therefore uh, repairing the defective protein because that the, the gene creates a protein that then creates the signaling pathway. So there, there are gene therapies that um, have been utilized for some time to treat cystic fibrosis in patients because it targets the cause of cystic fibrosis rather than just treating the symptoms. So um, gene therapy for cystic fibrosis started in 1990 uh, when scientists successfully corrected the faulty uh, CFTR gene um, by adding normal copies of the gene to laboratory cell cultures. Now, this is an important concept for the rest of the podcast because this, this methodology has really grown and developed over time. Now that we're in the 21st century, we can do so much more than what we're talking about here with cystic fibrosis. So, um, uh, so by finding the best delivery system for transporting normal CDFTR genes um, uh, into, the, uh, into the patient through synthetic vectors, nose drops, uh, drizzling cells, um, into the lungs, uh, that will help to correct the, the, the mutation in the, in the CFTR of that patient. So that methodology has worked, but as we move forward into the 21st century, uh, how would gene editing help with cystic fibrosis? So um, as you think again about a gene functioning like a, a computer program with ones and zeros, but instead A, G, T, and C, um, editing a gene and providing a, an alternative pathway or, or a new um, computer program um, will actually, uh, there's a way to access the, uh, the cell's own repair mechanism, DNA repair mechanism to utilize uh, a new program that we, um, we uh, give to the patient or we inject or we um, expose the cell to, then the, then the natural DNR, DNA repair mechanism can correct the mutation in the cell. So um, we'll talk about the different types of gene editing. And this is, this is probably my most favorite part of genomics and genetics and thinking about all the possibilities and it relates to CRISPR. So there are different editing tools that can be used to edit um, our genes, but CRISPR's probably the most versatile. In fact, you can buy home CRISPR kits, take them home and you know work on hybridizing plants, if, if you will, or doing other experiments. 
So CRISPR gene editing um, includes a guide that locates the mutated sequence in the CTFR gene, and then a template with the correct segment of DNA. So if you think about um, introducing a new um, set of instructions, really, um, and then CRISPR has these scissors, if you will, that break the patient's DNA at the site of mutation where the um, mutation is found. And that, that, that's so important because it creates this precise mechanism to edit the gene, to remove the mutation, and then to introduce um, a, a repaired or normal um, gene sequence um, or set of instructions. So once the tool enters the cell and reaches the mutated sequence of DNA, the scissors of CRISPR crisp out or scissor out or cut out the mutation. And then what that, that action actually um, snipping the, the mutation out of DNA attracts the attention of the cell's DNA repair mechanism. So it's almost like it induces a type of immune response and the DNA repair mechanism gets into um, work um, and uses the template that's been introduced, the, with the template with normal uh, DNA, and uses that to fix the broken DNA that we've cut out. So in a way, CRISPR uses the body's own repair mechanism to introduce um, the new sequence, the new code. And that's pretty remarkable. Um, and that will lead us down some pretty interesting ideas. Uh, so major advantaging of gene editing is that the changes it makes to the DNA are permanent because your own DNA repair mechanisms have, have, have made the change uh, permanent in the cell. So every time the cell replicates, it's permanent, um, that change. So in practice, though, gene editing is not perfect. So I don't want to leave our audience thinking that they um, that CRISPR is is the solution to all of our illnesses and and aging, <laughs> uh, but it is important to understand what the potentials are in the future. So uh, gene editing right now is very active in terms of research uh, nearing clinical trials, especially for cystic fibrosis and other diseases like uh, sickle cell anemia um, and sickle cell disease. So, so I'm introducing to you CRISPR and genetics. Now let's talk a little bit more about what, what we mean by genomics and what, what is the difference between genomics and genetics. So genomics is a more uh, recent term that's used today um, to describe all of a person's gene. Uh, or, or all a person's uh, genome, not just the inherited portion uh, or those traits linked to um, our parents, but the entire genome, um, some of which we don't really even fully understand today. So it's a scientific, it's, com it's complex scientifically, um, and it helps us to understand um, genomic-related diseases, um, such as heart disease, asthma, diabetes, and cancer. Um, because these are diseases that aren't just um, environmentally related, um, but they also um, relate to um, 
there's a com there's a combination of impact with environmental factors, individual genes. So genomics is offering new possibilities of therapies and treatments for some of the most complex diseases. Um, one other concept to introduce is, is something called population genomics. Um, so it actually applies biotechnology in the genome in a way that we can characterize genetic variations and work toward understanding how they relate to different diseases and how they contribute generally to the health and well-being of people. And um, it will also help us to understand uh, human evolutionary history and human evolutionary timelines. So the population study, uh, genomic study I'm most familiar with, uh, obviously is heredogene. And I'll put links to these in the description below. But heredogene is a population genomic study with the goal of making new connections um, between gene and human disease, developing new treatments, and increasing our ability to predict and prevent serious disease now and in the future. So there is a, a whole other podcast we could spend on heredogene and population genomics, but essentially what that allows us to do is to test a large population, 500,000 to a million um, voluntary participants who will uh, um, voluntarily give their blood um, and then from that blood, voluntarily, voluntarily allow us to extract DNA from their blood, do a whole genome sequence, and then attach or associate or link the whole genome that we've conducted the stud, uh, uh, from sequencing um, associated with the patient's medical record. Again, all voluntary. So imagine if you had a population of 500,000 or a million individuals that participate in a, a, a study like this. You could then associate a whole genome, which includes genes we don't, gene mutations we don't really even understand now. We can take those and, and all of the medical records associated with those patients, and that could reveal genes that are associated with depression or anxiety uh, because we have the associated medical direct, uh, medical record. Um, so just to give you a, a little bit of an explanation, a genotype is, is the whole genome, the whole code within each of our cells. But how that code expresses itself externally in our traits is called a phenotype. So the medical record is essentially our phenotype. It's how our genome is expressing itself, both in terms of our eye color and skin color and makeup, uh, our body frame, um, and diseases that may um, express themselves through these through gene mutations that we, we can discover. So it's a really important endeavor that many institutions um, are working toward. So um, moving on to another part of the topic in terms of genetics. Um, so, so why are genetics and genomics uh, important to our health? Uh, and we just talked about all of the different um, components of that. So uh, I'll just give you some additional examples. Uh, genetics helps uh, individuals and families learn about how conditions like sickle cell uh, or cystic fibrosis are inherited in families 
that then will result in the need for screening and testing options um, and um, uh, other uh, prevent preventive um, measures. So um, as we think about genomics, however, in helping researchers discover how our bodies interact uh, with the environment because the uh, the whole genome might, uh, might be involved. So why do some people, for example, get sick with certain infections, environmental factors and behaviors while others do not? Uh, for example, there are some people who exercise their whole lives, eat a healthy diet, um, have regular medical checkups and die of a heart attack at age 40. Why does that happen? Well, it's genomics, it's genetically related. There are also people who smoke, they're obese, um, they never exercise, they eat Kit Kats and peanut M&Ms and Twinkies every day, and then they live to be 100. And that doesn't feel very fair for those of us who try to live healthily. Why does that happen? Well, there's a genomic component. Um, so um, we, an example of this is COVID-19. So with um, the pandemic, some uh, people, individuals um, became very ill and even died from genome, from COVID, but others didn't. Why is that? Uh, it's because of our genome. So, um, so our genomes actually indicate or can predict how we're going to respond to the COVID uh, virus, for example, and other diseases. So I just wanna, I just wanna be really clear about how much genomics relates to our health and how uh, intertwined they are. So apart from accidents, here's some data, um, such as falls, motor vehicle accidents, or poisoning, uh, genomic factors play a role in nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States. So genomic diseases um, and genomic factors play a role in nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States. So that's heart disease, diabetes, cancer. Isn't that interesting and so important? Um, yes, lifestyle is important. Yes, eating healthy and exercising is important. Um, a really big portion of this though that cannot be understated is also our genomes. So all human beings, all of us um, are 99.9% .9 identical. So there's just the small 0.1 or a 10th of a percent that hold important clues between genes and the environment by means of genomics um, that will help us, that, that influence the way that we um, can prevent disease um, and modify lifestyle in com combination with genomics um, to prevent, to detect and early and prevent disease. So um, just as I kind of look through, through my notes and to try to make, there, there's so much to talk about in terms of genetics and genomics. I'm gonna um, skip to a concept called pharmacogenomics. So pharmacogenetics really is a field of study dealing with the variability of responses to medications due to variation in a single gene. So here's another example. Some patients who have, um, 
who have uh, depression or anxiety, and it's and it's not resolvable through um, uh, through therapy and and other mechanisms. So, um, for their mental health issues, uh, medication may be required. But many patients will experience taking um, a uh, antidepressant, an SSRI or SRDI or whatever whatever. Um, uh, mental health medication their their provider has has prescribed them and they have a uh, they don't react well to it or they don't feel better or they feel worse and and sometimes that is a result of genetic variant variations in each of us individually um, that determines how we're going to metabolize and process and transport a drug um, and so some, some uh, institutions who are using pharmacogenomics with their patients are finding that patients who, physicians, providers, who start with pharmacogenomic testing first to understand what's happening in a patient's genome um, to help guide them in the type of antidepressant and the dosage um, typically will, will uh, see a, a better response initially. Because if you think about it, if you are having mental health challenges and problems and, and you have exhausted all your options, you're ready for an antidepressant or some other mental health medication, and then you try it and it makes you worse, um, then not only do those patients oftentimes um, never want to try a medication again, which could really save their lives. Um, but they may not even want to go back to therapy. They may not want to see their physician who prescribed it. It confirms all of their fears about antidepressants. So pharmacogenomics becomes an extremely important part of helping providers um, better uh, are, guide their treatment for patients. Now, this is not just um, pharmacogenomics just is not related to only antidepressants. It's also related to uh, a whole bunch of different drugs and um, how drugs interact with genes. So it's a really important um, future for precision medicine and how genomic medicine impacts our lives. So now we get into some uh, even more uh, tantalizing components of, the genom of genomics and it's stem cell therapy. So uh, hang on to your hats for this next section. Uh, stem cells have two important characteristics. First, uh, stem cells are unspecialized cells that can develop into uh, various specialized body cells. So if you think about an embryo, when um, an, an egg and, and sperm come together and fertilize, um, the, first, uh, the first six to seven days or so of that fertilization um, creates something called a blastocyte. Um, and blastocytes are not really embryos yet, but they're a clump of stem cells. That, that clump of stem cells, however, has every, and every stem cell is the incomplete genomic code for that new um, life that has been created. And um, what begins to happen over time is that, that um, those cells with the code in each of them begin to differentiate and specialize and become um, cells like muscle cells, neuronal cells, skin cells, um, blood cells, 
And so as that happens and we are formed as humans, um, as adults, we still have some stem cells inside of us. Um, our liver, for example, our bone marrow. Um, but those, those stem cells are, are kind of like prepared to become the organ that they're associated with. So they're, they're kind of differentiated already. Um, so a liver stem cell, for example, is really only prepared to differentiate further into uh, a liver into a liver cell. And that is a reparative mechanism that our bodies have. Sometimes people will go to Mexico or some place and, and they think they're getting stem cells. And it's, it's unfortunate because um, people think that they're getting this embryonic stem cell that can differentiate into anything magically, into any tissue that needs to be repaired. When you don't, first of all, you don't know what a provider in some, I don't know, uh, dentist office or, or chiropractor's office that's claiming they have stem cells. Um, those stem cells might come from the umbilical cords of cows. Um, and I think of, if you think about that, that means this person that's injecting stem cells into you is injecting a uh, foreign agent, the, the stem cells in an umbilical cord of a cow are already differentiated to become cows, not human tissue. And in fact, our bodies would see those stem cells as foreign um, and um, even reject it and, and, um, and process it through uh, macrophages and just get rid of it. Now, there are some family members of mine who are going to watch this and they're going to dismiss what I'm saying and they're going to say, well, Gary's not a doctor. What does he know? You're right. I'm not a doctor. And what do I know? So I guess you can figure out on your own what stem cell therapy is really all about. Um, but I can tell you what the data um, tells us, right? So um, with stem cells, um, one of the controversial components of having stem cells is, uh, or using stem cells for treatment, is the most effective uh, type of stem cell is an embryonic stem cell. Right when the sperm and an egg come together and create um, that blastocyte, those initial first stem cells, those stem cells can differentiate into any organ, any human organ. There are two problems with that. First of all, there's ethical considerations regarding, you know, creating, um, using an egg and a sperm to create uh, this blastocyte that you're going to then use um, for medical research or, or medical treatment. But secondarily, uh, using embryonic stem cells to treat disease in another human will have some of the problems that we've talked about in terms of rejection just like an organ transplant um, that is coming from another human, it's not your own tissue, so there's always a risk for uh, rejection. So one of the cool things that has happened with CRISPR is a, um, the, the ability to take uh, differentiated cells from your adult body. So if skin cells were taken from my body, for example, um, CRISPR can be used to reprogram that skin cell and knock out 
the genes that told these cells to produce skin, told these cells to become skin cells. So CRISPR can be used to knock those genes out, take them away so that there is no gene telling those skin cells to turn into skin, or telling those stem cells to turn into skin cells. So I'm oversimplifying, but CRISPR knocks those genes out with instruction for, for um, becoming differentiated, which then results in that adult's uh, skin cell becoming kind of like an embryonic stem cell. It reverts back to its stem cell state. But here's what's cool. That is your own, that is your own stem cell. Um, so it's, it's um, coming from you. It is uh, not going to be rejected if we used it in treating a disease. So let's imagine that you are uh, in a bike accident. Some of my viewers love to bike and I'm always worried they're gonna get hit by a car because that happens frequently, so be careful. Um, but let's say that that happens and your spinal cord is severed or severely damaged. Then theoretically, uh, with this new technology, blood, skin tissue, or or even bone marrow, some cells from your body can be extracted. The, the encoding genes that tell those cells how to differentiate can be knocked out by CRISPR, resulting in a clump of new stem cells that belong to you. Um, and what's awesome and fascinating about these um, engineered stem cells is that they are not embryonic, so they have not come from a sperm and an egg of the, from a donor. They come from you as the donor and your own cells, not even a reproductive cell, but your own somatic cells. And um, then they also have the ability to replicate and divide and replicate and divide and replicate and grow forever. So they're, they're eternal and immortal, uh, which is fascinating to me. Um, and so, uh, if those induced stem cells that we've induced through CRISPR are inserted into the um, damaged part of the spinal cord, those stem cells will then begin to differentiate naturally into new neuronal uh, cells to repair the spinal cord. Is that fascinating or what? Now, there have to be clinical trials to ensure that that additional growth from stem cells do not overgrow because overgrowth of those cells could turn into a, a tumor and a, and a cancer. Um, but that is the kind of technology that's in front of us um, in relation to stem cells and stem cell therapy and, and genomics. So now the next part that's very exciting to discuss about um, genomics is cloning. Um, and sometimes people don't realize genomics um, plays a, a role or CRISPR specifically plays a role in cloning. So we're going to get into that. Um, so right now, you literally could pay $50,000 to clone your pet or your pets. Ask Barbara Streisand. Remember um, Barbara Streisand? Anyway, I was going to sing a song about... Um, Anyway, I won't do that. But um, when you think about cloning, if a really oversimplified way to describe cloning is 
a, um, a DNA from a, a sample like skin, blood, uh, come from a, a living donor and then, or a living organism, or a dead one, could be like for the mammoth DNA, but um, are then inserted into a denucleate uh, or a, a, an egg that doesn't have a nucleus where the nucleus was removed. And so when the nucleus from the egg is removed and the, the DNA from a, a living organism is introduced, that egg uh, then begins to reproduce with that um, genomic code from the donor. And that's how cloning works. So you could take the, a dog that died, uh, take a sample of their DNA, take that DNA and insert it into a, 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 an egg with the nucleus removed. That egg can then be, you know, uh, grown in the uterus of a, of a healthy female dog. And then the dog that is born is a replica of the dog that died. Um, so that, that happens today that, that it, with dogs, um, etc. So my son loves dinosaurs. He would love to see us uh, clone dinosaurs. Um, but uh, DNA sequences from dinosaurs are not accessible. The dinosaurs died off far too long ago. Um, the, the proteins from DNA have denatured. We just don't have access to that information. But we do have access to Ice Age animals like the woolly mammoth um, and other creatures. Um, so there is a possibility of reviving extinct animals. What does this have to do with human health or genomics? Well, um, there's a very interesting research team located in at Harvard that is working on using CRISPR uh, gene engineering to copy and paste DNA from the mammoth genome into living, living element cell cultures, uh, elephant uh, cell cultures. So remember, we, we have to have a living donor uh, egg in order to clone. So you can't clone a full mammoth. We can only um, create a hybrid if we take mammoth DNA and insert it into the donor egg of, a, of an Asian elephant, for example. But what this research team is doing is using CRISPR to, they're, they're essentially finding all of the, the, uh, the fibroblast or, or cell culture lines that are associated with, that are, that are unique to a mammoth genome and mapping those and then using CRISPR to um, copy and paste uh, DNA from from the from the the mammoth, um, which would eventually create mammoth-like cells that would be rewritten into Asian elephant cell lines, uh, generating over time um, more mammoth-like cells um, with with um, high levels of precision. So, um, for example, uh, you could create the mutations that are responsible for mammoth hemoglobin or and and edit that into a cell line with CRISPR. Um, extra, the extra hair growth that we see in mammoths, what genes are associated with that? Can we CRISPR those genes into um, an Asian elephant cell line? So as that process continues, it's essentially possible for a mammoth to be completely recreated 
through um, gene editing. Now, where th this gets even more interesting is when um, stem cells, uh, induced stem cells come into play. So um, induced stem cells, as we discussed earlier, can be developed uh, into multiple tissue types for studying the effects of mammoth mutations on the traits of cells, um, like red blood cells that um, carry oxygen, what what carrying what oxygen carrying capacity do these cells have that are different in mammoths than there are in um, modern elephants? So, what's next? Uh, the woolly mammoth and uh, Asian elephant are very close, um, closely related. About ninety nine point they share ninety nine point nine six percent of their genes. Um, so. Once the a, a woolly mammoth um, trait has fully appeared and is sufficiently um, uh, have sufficiently appeared in stem cell derivatives or stem cell derived tissues, scientists can begin experiments to generate embryos that are fully mammoth, really, um, possibly through stem cell embryogenesis. Uh, this would include. Inclu this would also include constructing artificial an artificial uterus um, that would gestate these mammoth embryos that we've basically used CRISPR and stem cell or um, induced stem cells to create. And so this planned technique would eliminate the need to use Asian elephants, um, elephants as surrogates to breed a new generation of woolly mammoths. Once a first generation of modern woolly mammoths are born, uh, they will be in the care of captive Asian elephant family groups. I really look forward to seeing that in zoos. Um, so they would provide growing mammoths the social imprinting they need to form snow treading herds um, in, the, in the tundra. So their adopted Asian elephant parents will not be able to tolerate cold weather for extended periods of time. So baby woolly mammoths can still be fostered in cold climates, or they would need to be in order to survive in the wild. And then the next step would be to ensure a captive breeding population of woolly mammoths is large enough. <laughs> Herds can be established at suitable grassland restoration sites throughout the Arctic. Imagine that. That is a real-life Jurassic Park, except it's an Ice Age um, park. So uh, the, premier, uh, the pr premier future for mammoths um, would be something like the Pleistocene, Pleistocene Park um, that has been established in northeastern Siberia. So what the hell is a Pleistocene Park, <laughs> you might ask? Well, it is a Russian nature reserve, um, in the Sakha Republic. It's located in northeastern Siberia, not Iberia, if you're Trent Sutton. Uh, it's not Iberia, it's Siberia, um, where they've recreated a northern subarctic steppe grassland ecosystem that flourished um, during the glacial, uh, last glacial period. So this project is being led by um, Russian scientist Sergei Zimov, um, and Nikita Zimov, uh, they are testing the hypothesis 
that uh, repopulating with large herbivores from the Ice Age and predators, um, we could restore rich grasslands and ecosystems that were caused by overhunting because they they hypothesized that a tundra is not a natural uh, habitat, that it, it really should be full of grasslands, but um, early human hunting, Neanderthal hunt, hunting, um, destroyed the ecosystem, which resulted in these tundras that have permafrost and that that has actually led to a degree, and I don't understand why, but they have hypothesized that that leads partially to our problems today with global warming. So by reintroducing these extremely large herbivores and carnivores from the Pleistocene era or Pleistocene period, um, the tundra would be reinvigorated, grasslands would grow, and we'd have some kind of efficient carbon sinking mechanism through that ecosystem. Uh, if someone knows more about that, please comment below because I don't, I don't quite understand it. But I do want to, to say what's cool about this is that they are planning other extinct animals um, as part of their cloning um, effort. So um, that includes the woolly mammoths, cave lions, uh, steppe bison, woolly rhinoceroses, Irish elk, and cave bear. Now as for cloning humans, for those with conspiracy theories that love to think about science fiction in reality, there are something called spindle proteins um, that are in cells, mam mammalian cells, cells. But in humans, those spindle proteins are located near the nucleus of uh, reproductive cells in humans. So in order to clone a human, if you think about taking an egg and taking the nucleus out of the egg and then introducing um, genetic material from someone else, um, taking the nucleus out of it, a human egg would destroy the egg because of the how close the spindle proteins um, are located near the nucleus. So this is unique to humans and some primates. So it is not possible to clone a human, at least today. So what can we learn from today? Uh, I think one of the things that I, I want to um, impress on viewers' minds is the importance of science and scientific advancement. And to not be so fearful, um, but to be hopeful. Uh, and then to really understand what the data is telling us about science instead of uh, relying on someone's Facebook post. I've said this before, but um, the opinion of someone you respect and care about is not evidence. It's not data and it isn't accurate. Uh, there, there are ways to critically think so that you can understand what the data is telling us and then make decisions about how to live your lives and how to raise your children so that you don't become fearful of vaccines and turn into anti-vaxxers or, or try to cure cancer through alternative medicine that a chiropractor might offer you through essential oils or, you know, or an adjustment uh, to your back or a massage. And I, I, the list goes on, right? Um, rather, there are incredible advances in biotechnology that are 
absolutely revolutionary and will forever change our future and how we live. This will mean, this will mean, ladies and gentlemen, um, extended lives. Our children, my children, who are ages 13 down to six, uh, they will probably live into their hundreds. Many of the viewers here are going to easily live into their 90s, if not early hundreds. And those long lives will probably be um, high quality lives uh, lived because of our technologies and health and science. So please don't reject uh, science and technology. Um, don't reject uh, what we've learned from um, advances in um, genomic medicine, precision medicine, um, but rather embrace the learning process. Don't be lazy and just call up your friend or check on Facebook regarding um, something about medicine. Rather, educate yourself um, through critical thinking. Now, remember, critical thinking requires that you are willing to um, you are willing to challenge your own bias. So, um, and look at evidence. Um, so we could do a whole other podcast on what critical thinking is and what evidence is, um, but that will be for another show. So thank you for joining us tonight. And uh, please remember to like, subscribe, comment, ring the bell, and please submit more topics. Um, we have some really exciting topics coming up re relating to the real estate market and if there's a bubble that's about to pop. Um, and there's also an upcoming episode on polygamy. So join us. Like, subscribe, comment. Peace out. <laughs>